Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine this morning. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi and Tabiso Luhoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the hour. A court in Kenya finds two men guilty of helping the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militant group launch a deadly terror attack in a mall in 2013. Discovery Health Medical Scheme will from next year cover the cost of infertility treatment for members on their elite schemes. And in economics news, Lesotho relaxes stringent restrictions to allow more economic activities to resume operations. But first up, the news with Onelin Zinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. An ROB court has convicted Mohammed Ahmed and Hussein Hassan Mustafa for the offences of conspiracy to commit a terrorism act and being in possession of material promoting terrorism activity. Nairobi Chief Magistrate Francis Sendai found that the two had actively participated in the Westgate shopping mall attack in September 2013. The third suspect, Liban Omar, was acquitted due to a lack of evidence. The September 2013 attack by the Somalia terrorist group Al-Shabaab left 67 people dead and many others injured. Ah. After gunmen stormed into the mall and opened fire on shoppers, the two convicts will be sentenced on October 22. The Namibian Office of the Presidency cancelled a meeting with journalists meant to discuss complaints raised against President Hay Gengob's uh, press secretary, Alfredo Hengari. The office claims that only 10 out of the 56 concerned journalists confirmed participation. A group of 56 journalists early in September wrote to Gengob to pre- express their dismay at the soured relations between with his press secretary, who was accused of interfering in journalists' work. According to the statement released by the presidency, the meeting was cancelled due to poor participation by the journalists. South Africa's Department of Correctional Services says its COVID-19 recovery rate is 96%. This follows a total of 118 active cases, including 46 inmates and 72 officials. There is a total of over 7,000 cases, 2,000 of which involved inmates. 56 inmates have died, while 69 officials also succumbed to the deadly illness. The White House has released a new video of U.S. President Donald Trump in which he says his coronavirus infection was a blessing from God in disguise. He said he wanted all Americans to have access to the treatment that was given to him. The BBC's Nomia Iqbal. Standing outside the Oval Office, he claimed his recovery from coronavirus was fast and even said getting it was a blessing in disguise. He spoke about the experimental drug he has received, Regeneron, which has been used only by a handful of people. He says he wants to make it free for all Americans, but the drug has not been approved by federal regulators. The full picture of President Trump's health remains unclear, given he's in the at-risk category and is on a number of treatments. Lastly, global climate change activist Christiana Figueres says the world would be a better place if greenhouse gas emissions were reduced. She was one of the main speakers at the 10th annual Desmond Tutu International Peace Lectures, which took place virtually. Figueres was the executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016. This year's annual peace lecture organized by the Desmond and Leah Dudu Legacy Foundation focused on climate justice. Figueres says the world in its current form is extremely worrying. Over the, ten, the next 10 years, we can and we must cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% globally, 
especially in industrialized countries, who have the responsibility to cut much more than their 50%. And my friends, if we do that, and there's no reason why we couldn't, then by 2030, we will have opened the door to a world that is not just not the dystopian world that I have just described. It is actually a world that is much better than the world that we live in now. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Tsinsi. Your sports news up next with Figi Lilingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, I'm Figi We kick off with football news. The coronavirus pandemic has stumped people of football across the globe. The Premier Soccer League managed to finish the 2019-2020 season in a bio-bubble environment. Now, it's the turn of the senior national team, Bafana Bafana, to show what they are made of. Bafana Bafana are in camp in Pugeng, outside Rustenburg, preparing to face Namibia and Zambia, respectively, in international friendly matches this week. Coach Muli Finzeki assembled a squad of 25 players, but he was forced to make two changes. He replaced Sipombule of Supersport United with Amazulu sensation Snetemba's Tebe, while Belgium-based Kurt Abrahams has been replaced by Olympian Lyle Forster. Here is Bafana coach Muli Finzeki. Uh, the two withdrawals is Gert Abrams from, uh, from Belgium because of the COVID uh, um, regulations we could not get him in the country and then we replaced him with uh, Sinatemba uh, Sitebe from Amazulu. If ever one player gets injured it gives an opportunity to another player and in this case it gave opportunity to Sinatemba Sitebe from Amazulu. Tennis news. Novak Djokovic said he was feeling okay after overcoming neck and shoulder troubles to defeat Pablo Carreno Busta and set up a Roland Garros semi-final showdown with Stefanos Tsitsipas. Djokovic beat Spanish 17th seed Carreno Busta 4-6, 6-2, 6-3, 6-4 to reach the last four of a major for the 38th time as he chases a second Roland Garros and 18th Grand Slam title. However, the world number one required treatment on his upper left arm after dropping his first set of the tournament on a chilly autumn evening in Paris. The Seb now sits two wins away from becoming the first man in half a century and only the third in history to win all four slams twice. And lastly, South African wheelchair tennis ace Hotata Munjane lost to Japanese world number 10 Momoku Otani in the women's singles opening round at Roland Garros. The South African number one, who is seventh in the world rankings, showed some fighting spirit and looked poised to earn a win over the 10th ranked Otani in Paris after she fought back from 5-2 down in the first set to 5-4 before losing the set 6-4. In the second set, the advantages swung back and forth, but the Japanese dominated the set when Munjane ran out of steam to eventually lose the match 6-4, 6-1 in 71 minutes. A 34-year-old Mpopo born star will join forces with Otani in the doubles competition. The South African-Japanese duo will open their campaign against Dutch top seeds Didier de Groot and Anik van Kurt on Friday. That's a Sport News this hour. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A court in Kenya has found two men guilty of helping the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militant group launch a deadly terror attack in a mall in the capital, Nairobi, in 2013, which left 67 people dead. A third man was, however, acquitted of all charges in the five-hour judgment delivered on Wednesday. Sarah Kimani has been following this story and filed this report. Seven years since the upmarket Westgate Mall attack, one of the worst attacks on Kenyan soil, it was time for the Chief Magistrate Francis Andai to deliver his ruling on the 12 charges that faced the accused persons. Mohammed Abdi Ahmed and Hussein Hassan Mustafa were found guilty. I am, however, satisfied that the prosecution has proved its case against the first and fourth accused persons on the respective charges facing them herein beyond a reasonable doubt. I find them guilty and convict them accordingly as follows. The first and fourth accused persons on count number two, charge of conspiracy to commit a terrorist act, contract section 23.4 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. The first and fourth accused persons on counts number three 
and 12, respectively, for knowingly supporting the Commission of a Terrorist Act, Contract Section 9.1 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act, the first accused person on counts 5 and 6 for being in possession of an article connected with a terrorism offence, Contract to Section 30 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Liban Abdallah Omar was acquitted of all the charges. The prosecution welcomed Wednesday's ruling but was quick to add that they will be seeking maximum sentences for the two. It's uh, justice for the people of Kenya and those who were affected by the Westgate attack. Security was high in and around the courts as the magistrate delivered the much-awaited ruling. Submission on the sentencing of the two will begin on the 22nd of this month. Sarah Kemani, Kenya. 18-year-old South African climate justice activist Ayaka Malitafa from Cape Town is calling on young South Africans to unite in the fight against climate change. Malitafa and another young climate activist from Uganda, Vanessa Nakate, took part in the virtual 10th Desmond Tutu International Peace Lecture. They participated along with global climate change activist Christiana Fugeres, who says greenhouse gas emissions should be cut globally by 50% within the next decade to save the planet from destruction. A former U.S. Vice President and climate activist Al Gore, African human and environmental rights activist Kumi Naidu, Anglican Church... Anglican Archbishop uh, Tabo Makoba and Mary Robinson, Zimbabwean businessman and philanthropist Strive Masiwa, all sent their birthday wishes. Mercedes Percent reports. The climate solutions. This year's Desmond due to International Peace Lecture focused on climate justice. It is hugely important for world leaders to make bold commitments about the climate solutions, but words are not enough. We must take action. We must walk the walk. We must ensure climate justice for all. Join me and walk the walk. Among those who joined the 89-year-old Nobel Peace Laureate in seeking climate justice are Meli Tafa from Cape Town who took the stand following a devastating drought in the Western Cape two years ago. Melitafa also wants her young fellow South Africans to join the fight in seeking climate justice. I've been protesting with fellow activists in Cape Town and had a direct encounter with our president, Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa. And he promised us that he was going to make sure that no African child is left behind in the 100% just transition to renewable energy and we will make sure that he keeps that promise. I also attended the World Economic Forum to urge world leaders to take drastic action in addressing the climate crisis. To the young people of South Africa, my message to you is this. We need to stop being passive. We need to stop putting each other down and criticizing each other. We are powerful beyond measure. And together, we will truly make powerful and effective change. If we stand up, take up space, and move as a unit, we will be able to correct all of the socio-economic injustices that we are currently facing as a country. Africa is one of the continents mostly affected by the climate crisis, while it emits the lowest carbon dioxide in the world. These are the sentiments of Nakate. My name is Vanessa Nakate, and I'm a climate activist from Uganda. The climate crisis was the greatest threat facing humanity. Africa is the lowest emitter of CO2 emissions of all continents, but it is among the most affected by the climate crisis. Climate change greatly affects the water resources, food security, infrastructure, ecosystems, and the people. We have seen devastating impacts of climate change in Africa, for example, the droughts and the floods. With the increasing global temperatures, the weather patterns are being disrupted, causing shorter and heavier rainy seasons and longer and hotter dry seasons. Global climate change activist Christiana Figueres says the world will be a better place by 2030 if greenhouse gas emissions can be reduced globally within the next 10 years. Figueres says there's no reason not to change the world to a better place from its current form. Over the, ten, the next 10 years, 
we can and we must cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% globally, especially in industrialized countries who have the responsibility to cut much more than their 50% in order to give space for others. But as a collective humanity, we have to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. And my friends, if we do that, and there's no reason why we couldn't, if we do that, then by 2030, we will have opened the door to a world that is not just not the dystopian world that I have just described. It is actually a world that is much better than the world that we live in now. The Peace Lecture coincided with Emeritus Desmond Tutu's 89th birthday, all organized by the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation. Recorded best birthday wishes came from friends, global climate change activists, business and various religious leaders, and ending with the Libertas Choir from Stellenbosch, rounding off in song to wish the retired Anglican Archbishop a happy birthday. And I want to start by wishing my dear friend Arch a happy 89th birthday. Now, I want to caution you, Arch, don't think of turning 89 as almost nine-tenths of a century. Think of it as less than one-tenth of a millennium. A happy birthday to you today, Arch, and to you, Mama Leah, for next week. Arch, we look forward to celebrating your 90th birthday next year. And we thank God for bringing both of you through the recent fire and protecting you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most merciful, the most gracious. On behalf of the Muslim Judicial Council, we congratulate our icon, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, today, the 7th of October, on his 89th birthday. Happy 89th birthday. What a blessing it is for millions of people on the African continent, in South Africa, and all around the world that you have been with us for all these years. Happy birthday, Archbishop Tutu. My name is Morgil Boa. I live in Tel Aviv. It is a great honor to address you, thank you, and wish you from the bottom of my heart a very happy 89th birthday. Happy birthday, Arch and Mama Leah. It's wonderful to to see you again this year, even though everything is virtual now, as you know, and I'm sure you've already figured out how to use Zoom and uh, Microsoft. It's a prayer and a greetings. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy That report by Mercedes Percent. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, also called COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I am James Shimanyula in Nairobi, Kenya. Maintain at least one meter, that is three feet distance, between yourself and anyone who is coughing or sneezing.
It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Labour Federation Kasatu is demanding the banning of all politically exposed persons from doing business with the state. This is among the demands handed to the government, the Gauteng Premier, David Makura, following a nationwide joint protest by four of the country's union federations. Hundreds of the union members affiliated to Kasatu, Fedusa, Saftu and Naktu took to the streets to demonstrate against corruption, high unemployment and gender-based violence. Tsepo Mungwai reports. Union members painted the streets of Johannesburg CBD red. There was no social distancing and not all protesters were wearing masks. But for the first time in the history of labor unions, four labor federations put up a united front. This is despite the lower turnout due to the lockdown regulations. The historic move by the country's four union federations was welcomed by many. However, SAFTU Secretary-General Zolinzi Mavavi warned that the joint protest doesn't take away the fundamental difference that still exists among different labor federations. Comrades, you know there are many things we may not agree with one another. And we do not hide those disagreements. They do not disappear because we are together yet. But we have a fundamental agreement that we want to express today to the office of the Premier of Gauteng. And therefore we are asking you, Comrade Jacob Mamabulu, to hand over the memorandum so that the Premier can hand over the, the memorandum to the President of the Republic, Cyril Ramaphosa. Kosatu and Saftu collectively represent close to 3 million workers. The recent salary freeze in the public sector is one of the issues uniting various union federations. Vavi explains. We cannot allow this government to set a terrible precedent for the private sector that agreements can be signed and willy-nilly agreements can be undermined. If we allow them to do so, believe me, comrades, everywhere else in the economy, the bosses will simply plead poverty and allow us to starve when they are raking billions and billions. Private sector corruption was among a long list of grievances submitted to the Minerals Council. National Union of Mine Workers Mpopa Gedi explains. One of the reasons that we are here or we are having this march is because of the levels of corruption in our country. And we say down with corruption, down. Away with corruption, away. There is an assumption that there is no corruption in the private sector. Comrades in the public sector, we are inviting you to come and see that. There is massive corruption in the private sector. Where the Kukemurs are retiring and become subcontractors in the mine. Among the demands by union is the subsidy of trains and taxis, registration of queue marshals and taxi drivers for UIF and the speedy prosecution of high-profile cases of corruption. Zola Sepeta is the Secretary General of the National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union. We want to say to Siri Ramaphosa, is the state president, if he does not act decisively to corruption, he must see us coming for him. Because there will be no difference between him and those who are implicated in corruption by virtue of not using authority given to the office that is leading is the one and the same. We are giving him little to fix this. If it's failing, we as the working people, Kosatu says there is still more workers' demonstration in coming months. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. Discovery Health Medical Scheme will from next year cover the cost of infertility treatment for members on the elite schemes. This means they'll now pay for interventions such as in vitro fertilization. While this has been welcomed by some stakeholders in the industry, they believe it's not enough for the millions of people battling with infertility. Tabilim Bela reports.
It's estimated that globally one in six couples struggle with infertility. This means they are unable to conceive within the first year or more of trying for a baby. Infertility has been ranked as the fifth highest serious global disability in the world. However, in South Africa, medical aid schemes don't cover treatment for infertility. Discovery Health Medical Scheme will soon include it in their cover, but only for selected members. Dr. Nolotando Nimatsurani is the head of clinical policy at Discovery Health. What we are introducing in 2021 is a benefit for assisted reproductive therapies, which is in vitro fertilization, the intrauterine uh, insemination. So these are more expensive interventions that are over and above the basic benefit that is offered from a prescribed minimum benefit point of view. Currently, medical schemes cover basic costs for investigations relating to infertility, treatment to the tubes, ovaries and uterus, partly because that's what they are expected to by the law. The cost of infertility treatment is also another major factor, with each cycle costing anything between 60 and 100,000. Nematurani says the new offering is reserved for members on their top plans, the comprehensive and executive plans. She says it will only apply to those who've been on these plans for a minimum of two years and are between the ages of 25 and 42. It's always a challenge because we are looking at various benefits. It's not just infertility that we're looking at. It's always competing requirements uh, from the same finite pot of money. The oncology patients will come wanting their high-cost drugs to be funded for. The diabetes patients will come asking for us to pay specific technologies that are high-cost. So it's really about ensuring that as we do all that, we ensure sustainability of the scheme as well. Dr. Jack Bigot, the Vice President of the South African Fertility Society, says this is a positive move but will do little for people who can't afford the expensive treatment. The issue we have here is that this only applies to the high plans. Now the high plans are generally the people who can afford to pay for themselves in any case. So we would have preferred that everybody on all the medical aids should be covered for infertility treatment because infertility is a disease. It is unfair to discriminate people simply because they've got infertility. Because already people with infertility are discriminated by society, by family and by everybody else. So we're adding more burden to this burdensome disease. The Infertility Awareness Association of South Africa has been negotiating with medical aid schemes for over a decade to compel them to cover infertility treatment. Founder and CEO of IFASA, Saskia Williams. We were pushing about the fact that they're discriminating against one disease on a list of 270 diseases. So now we hope that the other medical aids follow suit because if they don't, they do stand to lose members of childbearing aids. You know, and, and a lot of people that go through infertility are your top professionals. A lot of the public has started fighting with us about the fact that the cover doesn't actually help them because they're not on the top two tiers of discovery. Members will be expected to use accredited health centers with proven track records. In addition to the quality service and outcomes, the health centers must have prior agreement with the schemes on the rates they'll pay. Tabilempele, Johannesburg. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time, and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa, bringing you programming from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. 
It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Oni Lenzinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. One of the elite units within the formations of the Nigerian police, the Special Anti-Robbery Squad Unit SARS, is to be taken off the country streets following a con- consistent outcry by citizens. The United Nations Commission reports that Uganda is experiencing an increase in the number of cases of human rights abuses perpetrated by military and police officers. And the former United States police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May has been released from jail on bail. Channel Africa News, I am Onilinsinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Protection of Personal Information Act Popia ha- was signed into law recently and has left many marketers with questions around how their marketing efforts will be impacted in South Africa. A common misconception is that Popia is a list of things marketers can no longer do. The truth is, Popia is more about what you can do and how to do it, managing risk and compliance. A marketing manager at Everletic Karen Strabos joins us on the line. Karen, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Great to be here. Now, Karen, it, Popia is more about what you can do and how to do it, managing risk and compliance. Please explain that to us. Yes, it's, it's really about ensuring that we have accurate data that is secure and that we have permission to communicate to our databases. There's a lot of misinformation out there that states that you have to reconsent your entire database. And marketers are freaking out. You know, we, we also, because we know that you probably only get 10% of people that could actually opt in again, and that could cripple a business. But Propia doesn't say anything about reconsent in your entire database. The important thing to take into account is actually that you know where you have the database from and that you've got the proof. And that helps because then you don't need to reconsent. Now, the misconception or the notion that Popia is uh, a list of things that marketers can no longer do, uh, you know, take us through that. Uh, you know, you find that uh, your phone will ring off the hook the whole day and literally when you answer, it's automated uh, telemarketers. How does that work in terms of now going forward with Popia in place? So what is actually going to change is companies will need to, for example, the, the companies that sell these, they are now going to need to get consent to allow that specific company to contact them. So they can no longer just say, you know, you agree to receive communication from all third parties. You're going to have to say, okay, I am happy with Everlytics contacting me. So I have now given the proof, I've given, I've given consent, and I know exactly who is contacting me and why. And now, what about the companies that are seemingly selling database, databases to marketing companies? Yes, so that, those are the companies that I'm referring to. When it comes to the rest of marketers, you can't, you can't force someone to subscribe. If you can't a company that's really going to change the way marketers behave, we're going to have to explain um, how we're collecting the information, who we're sharing it with. Uh, we're going to have to really uh, channels you communicate with them on. And, and preference centers can really help us do this as marketers. So, so we really have to give the consumer the choice. Are they okay with receiving this communication? What type of communication? What channels? And the, the companies that sell these are going to have to be very so consent is about specific the product services that are going to be marketed to you, specific about the channels that are going to be used. So in your example, telemarketing. And I need to have opted in. There needs to be proof that I opted in to receive these communications from this specific person. I have to have a choice. <laughs> 
So is Papia a good thing for marketers and consumers? I believe it is. It's just important that us as marketers, we need to do our homework to put the right things into place because there are a lot of misconceptions out there. We need to understand what we can do as part of Papia and how not to kill our marketing databases. And that's why we actually partnered because we're not legal experts as evidence. We're a platform. We're a digital marketing platform. So we partnered with Novation Consulting because we realized that a lot of our customers are dealing with the, the same challenges. They don't necessarily understand, and it's, it's a lot of legal terminology. So we partnered with Novation Consulting, and we've just recently released a series of webinars, as well as in the next week there'll be a guide that kind of explains it in, in non-legally terms to help, help us all understand how impactful uh, Papier can be, but also you know, what are the things that we need to do in order not to kill our databases. And what's the response been like? So we only recently launched it. It's been this week. So we've, we've had a couple of people sign up to the campaign. But I would urge the listeners on um, the radio to, to follow us on social media and sign up for the series. I think it will be quite happening. Now, Karen, very quickly, just give us your uh, social media platforms, I, uh, probably Twitter, Instagram. Just give us the details so that uh, listeners who do want to uh, go on to your webinars are able to. Perfect. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And what are your handles? It's Evalytic. All of them are Evalytic. Evalytic. All right, Karen, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much. Uh, that's uh, Karen Stripos, uh, Marketing Manager at Evalytic, an internet marketing services company, joining us on the line. Bringing your latest updates on the novel coronavirus, I am Silvanus Kalemera for Channel Africa in Kigali in Rwanda. For the advice given by a healthcare provider, your national and local public health authority, or your employer, on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. It's 7.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The South African non-profit organization Jelly Beans, together with other partners, is this week hosting the African Child Trauma Conference. This first of its kind virtual event is hoping to provide a space for the assessment and and demonstration of tangible, innovative and pioneering methods to promote child protection within the context of a global COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. To discuss this further, Amanda Machaka spoke to Edith Creel, the Executive Director of Jelly Beans and Conference Host. We need to prioritise children's issues. Our children are getting left behind. And I think it's really important to help our practitioners working on the ground with children to be upskilling themselves, to be um, be affirmed in terms of the work that they do, and to create a sense of collectiveness around the issues of standing up and taking action on behalf of our children. Our children are in a state of desperation. Pre-COVID, things were really, really tough already. But the deprivation that our children are undergoing, the violence that they're witnessing, the abuse that they're experiencing has just escalated and our children need help. And just how bad is the situation uh, on the ground for the African child over the past six months? Very difficult to quote stats to you specifically right now because everybody's trying to be, be dealing with the crises. But we've seen a significant increase in terms of children witnessing domestic violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, abandonment of babies, an increase in suicide, um, and of course the issue of hunger. Our children are going hungry. So all the things that we worry about children have increased significantly and our practitioners on the ground are doing the best they can but we need a collective approach to really be trying to get to as many children as we can. 
And what do you think are some of the reasons why Africans are still turning a blind eye to child abuse and neglect? It's a complex issue and a very layered issue. But if I could maybe give a couple of ideas around that, I think that... um, In general, Africa being a third world country has a lot of survival issues, day-to-day survival issues that people deal with, which means that um, people are often doing what feels like the most important in terms of getting a meal on the table. And there's not necessarily the support to be looking at daycare for children or, you know, where the children are or, you know, mommy's coming home late. So I think survival issues are a big reality for our our families. The reality of war and gangsterism that our children are exposed to, I think, is hugely problematic. And then I think also, you know, the legacy, if I think in terms of South Africa, for instance, the legacy that we come from of suppression of people's rights and, you know, um, people being downtrodden gets passed from generation to generation. And that's not just a socializing thing. It's literally our brains start getting wired differently. And what that means is that somewhere along the line, those survival patterns um, also get passed down the generations. And so, um, you know, a parent who maybe grew up with deprivation finds it really hard to improve their parenting because they themselves haven't been receiving the parenting that they need. And it's really interesting in terms of the research that's coming out is the level of um, neuroscience that's involved in this issue. It's, you know, this is how my mom treated me and now I will treat my children in a similar way. So it's, it's, it's a very layered issue. Um, but I think that, you know, those would be some of the things that I, I think would be important to consider. Mm-hmm. And now, how, in your view, should we be protecting our children amidst this pandemic and beyond? That's a very interesting question. I think we need to be wherever we are, whether, let me say, wherever we are, we have people influence that we can influence and that we can care about. So if each one of us looks at the children and the families in our circle of influence and looks at what they could do to maybe uplift, support, contain those people in their circle of influence, our circles of care for children will immediately be improved. So we cannot rely on, for instance, government or a charity to say, let's make it better. It's not going to work. We need every single person to say, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to take action, and I'm going to influence the people in my circle and increase the circle of care. And what message do you hope this event will then drive to governments and civil society organizations? That we have to prioritize children's um, issues, that you know, children are literally our future. I know it said something over and over and over again, but if we don't do something now, we're going to have the impact in 60 years' time, literally. That's how neuroscience works. And so what I'm hoping that comes from this is that we um, have a collective approach in terms of going forward and a commitment from government and civil society and an accountability that in three months' time, in six months' time, we can hold people to the commitments that they've made so that we can really ensure that this is not just something that's written down on a piece of paper and committed to at the conference, but something that creates action and holds people accountable. We have to continue working really hard and collectively hold a sense of hope to make things different for our children. And who are some of the partners that you collaborated with to make the conference a reality? So we've been very privileged to have um, three partners join Jelly Beans. Um, that's UNICEF South Africa, ECPAT International, and the Teddy Bear Foundation. So those are the four core partners that um, assisted us with the support of Standard Bank and GovChat and Medical Practice consulting. So we've really had an amazing backing team to make this happen. That was Edith Creel, the Executive Director of Jelly Bean, speaking to Amanda Machaka.
I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided that all public schools should take a break for the next four weeks. Now, this has also been the experience in a number of other countries, where schools have opened and have also had to close due to the circumstances that each country has had to confront. South Africa's Special Investigating Unit wants a special tribunal sitting at the Boysen's Magistrates' Court to freeze the assets of contractors involved in the multi-million rand Baitbridge border fence contract. This relates to an advance payment of 21.8 million rand by the Public Works Department to two contractors. The contract was for the erection of the 40-kilometer Baitbridge border fence. The tribunal will hear the urgent application today. Rudani Chibase reports. The Baitbridge border fence between South Africa and Zimbabwe was erected in April to prevent illegal immigrants from crossing into the country. The fence started degenerating three weeks after erection had commenced. Illegal immigrants made holes on the newly erected fence as it was allegedly made from poor quality material. The special investigative unit has now discovered that 21.8 million rand was paid to the two companies before they started with a job. Advocate Silbima Hort of the special tribunal says the SIO wants the accounts of the two companies immediately frozen and the balance not to be paid out before investigations are complete. The Special Investigating Unit has approved the Special Tribunal for an order freezing and preserving the bank accounts of Caledon River Properties PTY LTD and Prof Team CC, cited as first and second respondents respectively, for an amount of 21.8 million. It is also approaching the Special Tribunal for an interdict wherein the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure is interdicted or restrained from making further payments in relation to the project pending the finalization of the main action against the respondents. Also cited as the respondents, the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, the Director General, as well as the Acting Chief Financial Officer. Makoto says the SIU alleges that the Department used COVID-19 emergency procurement processes to appoint their contractors. He says the SIU also alleges that the processes to award the tender to the two companies was marred with allegations of irregularities. It is alleged that the department, using emergency procurement processes to address, prevent and combat the spread of COVID-19, unlawfully appointed the two contractors. The total contract price amounted to 40.4 million, of which 21.8 million had already been paid even before the work commenced. It is contended that the said emergency procurement was not done in accordance with the law and other legislative prescripts governing procurement in state departments and that the processes were made by allegations of irregularities. Meanwhile, the community of Monsina near the Bedbridge border has welcomed the intention of the SIU to freeze the accounts of the two main contractors. The Monsina Community Development Committee was the first to raise an alarm about the shoddy work Committee spokesperson Godfrey Moyo says the two companies must pay back the money they were paid. We are supporting it because what was happening at the border fencing, it, you, can, you can see it's corruption which was taking place. We as a Mosina community, we didn't even see our 30%. We are saying 
let the law take its course. Uh, we want to see them uh, being prosecuted and they must bring the money back so that the project can continue. The Department of Defense and Military Veterans has since concluded that the fence is not useful and intends using drones to patrol the borderline. Ruzan Chibase, Pulukwane, Limpopo. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Good morning. The World Trade Organization is due to announce the final two candidates from a shortlist of five to lead the agency. Reports suggest that they're both women, Ngozi Okunji Wayela of Nigeria and Yum Yunghee of South Korea. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The WTO is an organization currently under severe strain. One of its biggest member countries, the United States, has major concerns, some of which are reflected in a block on new appointments to the body which hears appeals in trade disputes between member countries. That has left one of the WTO's main functions, settling these commercial conflicts, seriously impaired. Dealing with the US could be a major challenge for the next Director General, certainly if President Trump is re-elected. described his visit to Tanzania as strategic, aimed at strengthening business ties between the two countries. Chakwera was speaking at Gamuzu International Airport on Wednesday before departing for Tanzania for a three-day state visit. He said considering the nature of Tanzania being the main route for transport for Malawi, it was important to visit the country and appreciate how trading activities take place. Meanwhile, Malawi's High Commissioner to Mozambique, Frank Viasi, says Malawian investors are losing out as they are not using trade investment opportunities in the neighboring country. The Commissioner says Mozambique has business opportunities in different sectors which Malawians can exploit. Viasi said this ahead of President Lazarus Chakwera's visit to Mozambique earlier this week. Lesotho has relaxed stringent restrictions to allow more economic activities to resume operations. Restaurants are some of the businesses which will be allowed to serve meals to sit-in customers as part of the measures aimed at uh, uh, breathing life into the ailing economy. Business people will also be allowed to travel outside of the country's borders for economic reasons. Gymnasiums and live entertainment shows will also be allowed to resume operations with limited audiences provided they adhere to strict public health regulations to prevent the spread of coronavirus. The Institute of Certified Public Accountants of Kenya wants President Duhuru Kenyatta to extend the tax interventions introduced in April for two more years to facilitate the recovery of businesses and the economy. The Institute says that this will ensure a predictable and stable tax rate. The President had recently announced that the tax reliefs will expire on the 31st of December. The U.S. dollar is trading at 384.84 Nigerian Nara, 11.35 Botswana Pula, 107.57 Kenyan Shilling and 27 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One U.S. dollar costs 5 rule 59, Russia 78 rubles 19, India 73 rupees 27, in China a dollar is changing hands at 6 yuan 78 and in South Africa it will cost you 16 rand 63. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,883 and platinum at $855 per ounce. Brand crude oil is at $41.63 a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza.
Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that's a wrap of uh, Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Salif Keta with a track titled Africa. Goodbye and keep safe.
Kenya, 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 Kenya,